Hello there, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. As with my Monetizing Media newsletter, my goal is to dissect business opportunities across the media, entertainment, and gaming sector. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in each episode as we dig into a case study on their company, an investment thesis they have, or other tactical insights on business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. My guest today is Leisha Lee. Leisha is the co-founder and CEO of Rosebud AI a startup whose technology generates artificial images and videos of humans that look like real humans. Last November, she made headlines for releasing an initial database of 25,000 AI-generated photos anyone could use. Her team is now providing that technology for use in the advertising and entertainment industries. She co-founded Rosebud in 2019 after working as an investor at VC firm Amplify Partners and earning a PhD in stats and machine learning at Berkeley. The company has raised initial funding from well-known investors like Y Combinator, Lux Capital, Coastal Ventures, Amplify Partners, and YouTube co-founder Kevin Lin. Hi, Alicia. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing well. Excited to chat with you. I remember sitting with you when you were still at Amplify uh, and brainstorming the types of businesses that could arise from using AI to create virtual humans like this. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's exciting to see how you've built a company from that starting point since. One use case you're already in market with is enabling advertisers to personalize the appearance of their humans and advertisements without having to go through, you know, basically hundreds of different models in order to achieve that in a traditional mm-hmm. analog way. But you're also bringing this technology into the entertainment industry, which is kind of the core of where most of my audience is coming from. So I'd love for you to explain what Rosebud is bringing to the entertainment industry and what they'll be able to do with your technology. Yeah, so there's a couple of exciting uh, things we're piloting right now, but um, how it all sort of ties together and also just, you know, make to make sense of it in context of like, why do we even start with an advertising use case is uh, because a lot of the um, a lot of what this tech does that's impressive, um, but still needs help in, in in terms of the applications is it's very impressive in generating very realistic um, instances of particular domains. So in our case, it's model faces. Um, but to control that face to be exactly what a what a, a, a client wants, whether they're an advertiser or somebody maybe in the entertainment industry, uh, requires um, sort of like fine tuning that technical problem to express these like levers. And so whether that has to do with like actual demographics that you're targeting to like more abstract sense of like what is beautiful or interesting looking, um, it poses like both an interesting a technical problem, but also a product problem. And so in the entertainment side, uh, what I'm hoping to gain from first applying it to advertising is that I've already developed these levers um, and then I can help people create the avatar that they, uh, you know, that they exactly want um, um, to exist on a, in a digital space. And, and right now, as well, I guess, in terms of your product roadmap, um, is this just mm-hmm. for photographs or are you already doing this in video as well? We're already doing it in video, yeah. Um, that's not in the self-serve tool. I mean, just because uh, the order of operations is always to work on it with a couple of very specific customers in order to get the flow right and everything. But um, yeah, especially on the avatar side, it's there's a lot of um, interesting work that we're building on, which um, is, is so good at connoting subtle even expressions. Uh, so it doesn't, I mean, GANs are already good for like not looking in Canny Valley in photographs, but like in video, you have that extra dimension of like how, you know, how the animation looks. And I think in classical graphics techniques, you have 
like it's a much harder problem because you have to rig it, you have to drive it maybe with like mocap. In this case, the it's a little bit more black box. Uh, we can like obviously table that conversation, but like what I've been impressed by is, uh, and what we're building on is results which really transfer motion uh, very well and authentically. So it doesn't have these like failings of um, uncanny valley. You mentioned GANs, um, talk a little bit about the technological underpinnings of Rosebud AI, generative adversarial networks, you know, as a specific technique. Yeah, so GANs where they shine is that, you know, as you're alluding to, there's two different processes happening in order to um, uh, create this model. And so, um, you know, in traditional like supervised learning, you basically uh, oftentimes have a classification task, you know, is it a cat, is it a dog? And then you have a lot of data which tells, which is labeled cat or dog, and then you train a model that, that specifies this. Um, what generative adversarial networks goal is usually to do is like they, they learn from a data set um, uh, and try to reproduce samples that are um, like the similar to the distribution they learn from. So specifically speaking, if we're learning from a data set of all say human faces, um, then the model is supposed to produce an example of a face that is indistinguishable uh, from a uh, face from uh, the distribution that they learn from. And so this two processes that are competing with each other in sort of like creating this model is like one, there's a generator that is supposed to produce a face, an example of a face. And then there's a discriminator that judges whether the generator produced a face that was, uh, you know, fake or was it uh, real? And so because you have this like almost roundabout way of like improving the model, uh, you don't have to go and, and label like, oh, this is fa this face is real, this face isn't real. Um, and the generator kind of like, you know, um, in that sense gets better. And it just turned out that it, it works really well, this paradigm, when, when people improve the architectures and the level of compute and the type of data sets they trained on, it was able to produce faces that are extremely, extremely real. And so right now you have a self-service pool with a database of images that have already been generated and ways to continue to edit those. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what's your strategy in terms of how technical of a product you're building and how much you're targeting the kind of self-help mass user customer base as opposed to more of an enterprise, you know, mm -hmm. film studios, kind of large companies using this and putting um, some engineering muscle behind customizing it to their needs. Yeah, so no, it's a great question because it's something where um, it affects our kind of like everyday product roadmap choices. Um, to be quite honest, it's a little bit of both. Um, the scalability of this tech, I mean, sort of thinking about who's the end user, you know, we're sol solving pain points for both the, like the enterprise customer who are oftentimes not, you know, it's not like a team of designers, they actually just outsource this to an agency or even the agency clients themselves, they use us because like they have to create these visuals. And so it's good to work with those customers at first because they have, first of all, bigger budgets. And then two, um, uh, the command in, for the level of quality is very high. And so you can't just kind of get things out of the box that your, your run of the mill deep fake is not gonna kind of like cut it <laughs> in that case. And so it kind of forces us to really build a moat in the sense of like, we're, we're creating something that's really high quality. But then another issue is like the product builds a moat by understanding what customers want to express. And so there's a lot of technical work there into sort of like translating these more abstract, like, okay, here's a mood board of like images. Uh, what what features are we gonna learn from that? So that like the customer, when they input those this mood board, they actually get 
you know, like the kind of faces or the photos and videos they want. Um, so yeah, we focus on that first as like willingness to spend and two, because it helps us uh, learn more about what we need to develop. And then once there are uh, things that appear as commonalities, we can start surfacing it on the self-serve. So right now on the self-serve model, we have uh, basically like maybe one or two generations behind in terms of uh, the results uh, that our white glove service um, uh, can can generate, um, you know, high high definition and like all of these like different extra uh, expressiveness. Um, but with that said, I mean, the goal is also scalability, right? And I think there's it's a very kind of subtle uh, conversation there. But like, I we want to make it so that more creators are empowered to to make high quality visuals, and so eventually we want to be able to leverage the fact that the tech is automated so that more people can use it. And so that's the goal with the self-serve tool. I guess both in terms of the enterprise use case and a self-serve use case in entertainment. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about different use cases there. I think the natural ones that come to mind are film, TV, music video, the kind of video production mm -hmm. part of entertainment where what we're talking about is the ability to have characters in there that are artificially generated and there's an angle there around cost savings and kind of some work but i think part of it and, and what's maybe a lot more exciting is this idea of how you could personalize content so much to different audiences mm -hmm. without having to reshoot everything with kind of different actors are there other key use cases aside from that video production element that i mentioned that you see in entertainment mm -hmm. yeah the two that's popped up recently um they i think they're two different manifestations of the of the same thing and i found it really interesting since our conversations in the beginning uh which is like one is coming more so from music so like uh really curious in how this tech can be used in in, in leveraging musical alter egos and and expressing them and also just like experimenting with like how uh different visual appearances can can support the same uh you know like the same storyteller so in the music case it's it's very much like hey maybe you know like a concrete use case was like if you're already an artist who's producing a certain genre of music like what if you want to experiment with another genre like do you do so as like yourself or maybe because there's already such a rich kind of like digital digital platforms of uh of like you know communicating with your fans you can actually push it through uh, via an avatar um, and likewise because you've decoupled appearance from the actual talent you can actually have like an entire it could be like a many to one map right like you can have an entire team of people and this is exactly kind of obviously what Lil Michaela does um but I think what's exciting is like now this tech is not just like you need an army of like CGI uh, folks to produce that like you can use something like Rosebud to create the fictional character and then also drive its like motion and that's sort of the building blocks of of uh allowing more storytellers to have access to it and yeah, and then the other thing I was going to mention was uh, what I think is also a manifestation of the same thing, but in a totally different realm is, you know, people who uh, might just like want a more idealized version of themselves. And by idealized, I don't mean necessarily like um, classical beauty standards. It's just like, hey, they want to kind of divorce a little bit of the things they're expressing from like maybe how they would you know, physically look in real life and maybe just sometimes to protect privacy. And I think like mm -hmm. when we sort of think about that, it, it immediately goes to negative use cases like, okay, maybe, you know, anonymous, therefore people can like harass online, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in platforms such as like Twitter, where, you know, you're expressing a lot of like maybe philosophical or political opinion, um, like it's interesting to experiment with like how much more 
um, compelling can a message be if you just you know experiment with the persona that instantiated it? And I, I think especially, and this is why we have to be careful who we partner with here, but if we feel like it's a very ethical use case of that, um, I'm definitely willing to experiment. Yeah, well, I also think um, it, it, it's interesting, obviously we're talking amidst um, kind of huge protests in the US around yeah. um, oh racial God. bias, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the interesting things here, talking about ethics of this sort of deep fake technology, mm -hmm. there, are, there are definitely concerns and things that have to be addressed with it. On the other hand, I think one interesting outcome of whether it's how advertisers use it or different entertainment companies use it, of personalizing characters in content that's otherwise exactly the same to mm -hmm. different ethnic groups or genders, whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. I think what you'll see, because it's a sort of A-B testing, of just mm -hmm. like the only if the only thing you change is race, for example, mm -hmm. how do people engage with it differently? Um, mm -hmm. And and I imagine there will be some kind of quantitative findings there that maybe mm -hmm. help contribute to discussions and make more people aware of how we interact with content differently based on solely that. I totally agree. Yeah, I, because like the people who can experiment and hold resource power uh, has been so consolidated. Uh, and also these resources, like there, there's so many like more resources that's required to produce content. Um, there's not a lot of experimentation. So it took us like a long time to realize something like rich, crazy, you're crazy rich agents. I always permit the right wrong thing could be successful, right? They're like, oh, no, no, you can't have like an all Asian cast. But like, similarly here, you know, I find that my most interesting customers are ones who are like, hey, I don't want to just use it for like classical beauty standards. It's more like now I don't have to put in so much money in order to test out like very interesting, uh, very different beauty standards and just see if people respond well to that. And I think that's what I mean by like democratizing with this kind of tech. Yeah. Have you seen um, any use cases yet um or have you built anything in the gaming context of using this with characters in an interactive environment not yet not yet um it's yeah I, I think it's a it's a very kind of like um that ecosystem requires a little bit more like uh you know premeditation there um but i, I know it's definitely very interesting for me i mean the whole name rosebud is as you know kind of is more so inspired by The Sims and how, you know, I, I spent a lot of time building my virtual world when I was playing The Sims as a kid and, and Rosebud was a cheat code uh, to have to have time to do that. Um, so it's, I think gaming and like creating worlds and like giving people the power to kind of like bring forth what's in their imagination. That's, that's just like been always a very compelling reason to build this kind of technology for me. So um, I, I imagine there's gonna be a, an outlet in gaming at some point for us. Yeah. 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 What's, the what's the reception been um, to Rosebud thus far in terms of how many companies are ready to start experimenting with this technology and the sort of resources mm -hmm. they're putting into um, testing it out? Yeah, definitely a spectrum. I mean, to be honest, um, because the technology, a lot of the work we do is also just thinking through like how to speak to the pain points so that like we can make the tech makes sense in the context because like you never want to open with like this is ai because nobody really cares um and so uh what's more interesting i guess is like with shelter in place and you know unfortunately like covid uh it's it's brought forth a lot more kind of like uh, uh conversations into the funnel where people are either like 
okay, they have a hair on fire pro problem because they can't do photo shoots uh, for the product photography, or they actually just have more time now because a lot of people are spending more time on R&D. And so they're looking at different, uh, different ways to start moving their uh, manual uh, content creation processes to something that's more remote friendly. And so we're trying to basically engage with both kind of like inbound and, and building this. So it's been more positive in the last couple of months because of this, strangely. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're like really you know, um, uh, solving a problem that is both enduring, but can like, can like answer to this need now. What pricing structure have mm. you found to fit, particularly for more enterprise, like entertainment companies use case? Is this something you're offering as a SaaS tool or are you tying it to the amount of data used, the, you know, the number of characters generated? We tried it. We're trying um, on the self-serve part, part as a subscription kind of tool, but you know, uh, those, um, those fe the features that we surface there are a bit more limited compared to the enterprise side. And the enterprise side is just most naturally anchored to like the volume of either photos or videos produced. Um, and so like one, because it's just easier to get people to kind of pay for stuff that they already think is like they're going to buy, like they're, you know, they think is valuable. So it's per photo. You don't have to subscribe to anything. Um, but, um, and I think that probably would endure because we're just kind of betting on the fact that you need to always generate content. And so um, in that way, we have recurring revenue. Um, the subscription part for the self-serve was just motivated by the fact that a lot of um, content kind of providers, whether it's like stock photos or even kind of design tools are are um, priced that way. And so if we end up getting um, uh, also, you know, ways to tier it depending on how much content they use, it would continue, I think, to make sense for that user base. What is currently holding you guys back from being where you'd like to be in terms of just technical challenges that you guys are focused on overcoming or certain challenges in the market that whether it's due to timing or just kind of education in the market uh, need to be overcome? I mean, always, you know, there's more to build than we can build it in time. So that's just always like, I think if you, if you're, I guess doing your homework, you should be amassing a feature set that is like, you know, and, and that's a good problem to have. But with that said, I, I try to keep our technical stack in a combination of like, hey, things that we know will work, but just requires kind of building versus things that are a little bit of a research problem. Um, and um, the research problem side, I think is, is definitely uh, like it, it just, it's inevitable uh, to have when you're sort of at the cutting edge here. Um, but you kind of don't, I think the benefit of like working with real customers is that it helps you scope down the problem so that it becomes tractable eventually. So mm -hmm. that always continues to be, you know, um, I think both a, a moat building process, but like what makes it kind of interesting and there's definite, definite R and D here. Um, on the customer education side, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it just it continues to be like, you know, a, a constant. I think it's a creative process of like, how do we bucket these features into something that really speaks to a, a pain point? And so you know, some of the things we discussed here, they're, they're in constant evolution. Like maybe I'll find that the avatar product really does make sense and self-serve. And it's just like helping people first find the, the model that they want and then helping them kind of puppet it through their own uh, their own motions. Like that might, you know, we might want to build like a, I don't know, a TikTok plugin for that. Who knows? <laughs> um, but like that yeah. is a constant evolution right now. Is there a specific tipping point you see looking into the future where in terms of the growth of this market, you know, it goes from being this experimental sort of technology and, and something entertainment companies want to tinker with to 
truly becoming something most entertainment companies are using in a meaningful way or budgeting for you know lots of consumers or amateur creators are spending money on and, and using as part of their day-to-day -day process and when you say entertainment should we narrow down together what areas we think it's most promising in because i feel like for instance in tv and film we're probably a little bit further away um, be just because there needs to be both hybrid models, like not just deep learning, but some deep learning and computer graphics, because there's such you know high definition and structure that's required. Um, so I think we're definitely further away. Um, but for maybe short form content, and this is why I started with advertising, because like you have a lot more control over like how short or how much needs to be animated. I think that's actually much sooner. And that's kind of what I'm trying to solve for to, to bring forth that tipping point <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. Is that something you see as two years from now, five years from now, what's your, your read on the market? More along the, the one year, two year timeline. And it's just like, you know, like first solve something super concrete in a super constrained area, but then like the generalized problem is, you know, we're kind of choosing those in order of operation of how much those learnings will help inform the generalized problem. So like an example in fashion product photography is like, it helps me figure out like, okay, how do I create a perfect avatar based on aesthetic preferences? Um, but then it's like realistic enough to be actually used in fashion photography, but then that still informs the bigger kind of, you know, virtual model problem. Um, and then there's levels of like video and animation that can go into that. So I see that, like that particular vertical pretty soon, actually. I mean, within maybe next year, next two years, it can get really pervasive, um, especially as necessitated by things like uh, shelter in place. But as we're building on that, we actually gain a lot of learnings uh, for all of these other uh, use cases that we continue, we're continuing to like hear needs from and, and trying to think through like our development. My last question goes back to the ethics point. What are you guys building or, or what process are you implementing particular to the self-service component mm -hmm. to protect against people using this technology for intentionally or unintentionally unethical purposes? So, I mean, the first thing that we had to implement literally like when we released self-serve was to make sure it's like not um, being used for um, porn, just having a filter for that. And that was just like out of necessity because quite frankly, just immediately people are using it for that. And this is also why I don't want to be in the place of building consumer tool uh, for this tech, or at least, you know, I, ha I have to think a lot more about like what, if it were a consumer tool, like who, you know, who can use it because it's just, I, I don't think I have anything morally against porn. It's much more like then people start, like there's a lot more gray area with like child pornography and that's just a legal period, regardless of whether it's a virtual or not virtual um, person. Um, and then people can like do deep fakes on that. So because we're focusing on a specific set of customers right now, it's very easy to just like not enable those use cases. And then two, kind of just making sure that this is not a tool for people to uh, steal identities. And um, so, you know, right now we have a, a lot of control or on making sure that like, you know, we're generating faces that truly like don't exist. We're not letting customers just like take another face from a celebrity and put it on there. Like that's not the, that's not the use case. Those two steps kind of limiting its use case towards like very obvious uh, types of like misuse. And then uh, to just like providing guidance to our customers about like, this is to generate virtual characters, not replacing real ones. I I'm curious in the tens of thousands of characters you've already generated that were unique in terms of not based on any existing mm -hmm. people. Have you already found instances where some of those images look so exactly like certain real people that they think it's it's based on them? From like a, a legal point of view, it's like, you know, how, how much does this become a case where 
you know, even if it weren't based on AI, you just had like say twins and the one twin represented like a competitive brand and another twin, you know, it's like, is that allowed? You know, to what extent can you own the likeness of something just because the space of faces is only so large. Like you're just gonna get these like collisions just by accident. Um, that can happen. I think honestly that's in like legal gray area um, because if the intent was just to generate a face and a body and it's based on proprietary data in our case, um, then what, you know, like what claims can you have in the same way that it, like if an artist without any intent kind of like draws a face from their imagination, it happens to look like someone, right? So fortunately, at least there's some precedent there. It's like if they based mm -hmm. it completely on another picture, that's illegal. But if they're like kind of, there's no real trace of like being based on something else that just happens to look like someone else, then um, I think those aren't prosecuted right now. And they, I, I would argue, should not be prosecuted in the AI case either. Excellent. Well, Leecha, <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time. Always fun to, to I know, check in always with fun. You and, and so, get the latest. Always a pleasure to chat with you about this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media Podcast. To keep learning more tactical insights on the media, entertainment, and gaming industry, subscribe to my Monetizing Media newsletter at monetizingmedia.com.